screaming or booming or doing anything else that's inappropriate up here. On behalf of Penn American Center and all the writers that will read here tonight, I want to welcome you to uh, Penn New Writers Reading Number 15. We thank Encarnita Quinlan for her generosity in making available this wonderful bookstore and the Endicott staff without whose efforts these nights would be impossible. All of us join in requesting that you refrain from smoking on these premises. I also wish to thank Pamela Pierce for her efforts in organizing not only this Penn New Writers Evening, but an earlier one as well. I was one of the writers featured in a Penn New Writers Evening held here at Endicott in October of 1985, when Mary Morris invited me to read from my novel, Time Capsule. The New Writers Evening would be my debut, and I launched immediately into a quixotic search for the perfect suit of clothes. I braved dozens of boutiques, tried on scores of suits. Finally, I did find the perfect suit and took out a fixed-term 30-year mortgage in order to pay for it. My grandmother, who had otherwise declined all invitations to visit me in the eight years I'd lived in New York, flew out for Penn New Writers Evening Number 12. The introducer that night was Faith Sale, an editor from G.P. Putnam's Sons, and in the audience was literary agent Sterling Lord. I had met neither of them before. A few months later, Sterling Lord sold Time Capsule, and Faith Sale published it. Before departing from Los Angeles, my grandmother gave me the bad news. The sleeves of my suit were at least three inches too short. Tonight's authors will follow the order listed on the program card, with one exception. Edward Hoagland cannot be here, and he has asked me to convey his regrets and read his introduction to Anna Shapiro. Anna, after Anna, Norma Klein, the author of many works of fiction for adults and juveniles, including Mom, the Wolfman, and Me, and the O. Henry Prize-winning story, The Wrong Man, will introduce Barbara Jones, a fine and funny writer whose stories I often enjoyed while we were in the Columbia writing program together. Oh, shit. <laughs> Rewind, back up, do all those technological things. No. Norma Klein will introduce Amy Ehrlich, who will read children's fiction. Susan Minot, author of the acclaimed first novel, Monkeys, will introduce Barbara Jones. Now is the fine and funny part. She's a real good writer whose stories we, we went over at Columbia. Lastly, F.D. Reed, a poet, editor, and translator, and the author of such novels as The Wild Swans, White Colors, and Resurrection will introduce the poetry of Ralph Savarese. Our reception will follow. From Edward Hoagland come these words on Anna Shapiro, doctored by Anna Shapiro. Anna Shapiro grew up mainly on Long Island and graduated from Bennington College and from Columbia University's graduate writing program with some stops in between. She has worked since then at the New York Review of Books, Sports Illustrated, as a proofreader and frequently reads manuscripts for a New York publisher for additional income. Her own fiction began with an emphasis on the subject of love. Two of her early titles were The Ideal Lover and The Purposes of Love. But she has gradually shifted to a wittier, more ironic examination of how women and men get along with each other. She has just finished reading a no uh, writing a novel called The Right Bitch, from which I think you're about to hear a section. And she has also been writing a number of new short stories on the themes of love and sex, or of adolescence and of terminal envy. She is a stylish, independent-minded writer, a feminist who is critical not only of the establishment, but of feminism and she writes book reviews, which are incisive and economical, but fair-minded. And uh, Ted wants to add that Anna and Susan w were both students of his. Now, Anna Shapiro.
semi-audible. Um, Ted is right. I am going to read a very, very short piece of The Right Bitch. Uh, it's a diary, a man's diary. So keep in mind that it's not my voice you're hearing, but a man's, or it's going to sound very strange. Um, and as we meet him here, uh, he's trying to talk a woman he's gotten pregnant into having an abortion. Um, this is his second attempt to do this. They're both in their mid-30s. His name is Tony. Hers is Celia. And this is about a quarter of the way through the book. Uh, she's also, you should probably know, only one of a number of girlfriends. On my way over here, I noticed mothers, lots of mothers. A bistro has been replaced by a kid's clothing store. There's a kid's clothes store on West Broadway, kid's clothes in Soho. And now I see it. It's been all around me, but I haven't seen it. There are kids everywhere. When I was a kid, there were kids everywhere. You took it for granted. You went out on the block, wherever you lived, anywhere in America, and there were kids. There they were, just there. And then somehow, when you got older, they weren't. There weren't any more kids. All the kids were your age, and there weren't a bunch of new ones out on the block with tricycles and getting in the way of traffic. There were more and more old people. There are still more old people. But there are kids now all over the place, and more coming. All these women who are pregnant, out to there. I was waiting for a light. The woman next to me was about to pop. Unconcerned, though, a ton of makeup, blue eyeshadow, lashes like Minnie Mouse. She gives me this leaden look, her fur jacket open and the belly out. She's carrying a bag from Bergdorf's and puffs at her cigarette like drop dead. I thought moms-to-be didn't go in for smoking these days. Jumpsuits filled with their burden like Christmas stockings, drooping and bulging with an orange. Pregnant women carrying a kid and carting another. A whole baby factory, a baby circus. The stroller, the snuggly, the bouncing and lagging and tagging and whining and pulling and jumping and staring. It is the misfortune of man that we are born so imperfect and take so long to achieve our rightful form. Who would willingly subject their laws to this squalor and deformity? I can almost forgive my own mother, who had only the relative blessing of the imperfect version of me. Some of these mothers are beauties, women you can't imagine wanting to be mothers, can't imagine have been, the thinnest legs, the sleekest hips, pushing their strollers in spike-heeled boots and clearly noticing that one notices, hurrying, swinging blonde hair off the face, reaching down to pull one out-of-place blonde hair off the face of the impeccably dressed child who is her future double, the vanity of that doubling, looks of earnest urgency being ignored by comfortable dumpy types with their hands on the child's head, standing back on her heels, short hair that says, I don't have time to look in mirrors, I'm a mother. Women with their mothers, their natural enemies, joined in the common cause of ruining yet another life as they ogle a toddler who is their willing and unwitting prey. Abingdon Square Park, so full of these that, behind the black iron bars of its fence, it is Abingdon Square Zoo, the monkey house, or a Bruegel. Mad, frantic, dashing, dervish action, practically tipping like a spinning top with pointless energy. The children are so many parodies of violent emotion, writhing in agonies or ecstasies of trivial, immediately forgotten gratification and disappointment, all popping eyes and grimaces and elbows and knees and noise. What happened to feminism? 
Where are the corporate types in their hideous suits and transvestite ties? Where are the daddies? I repeat like the beautiful mantra of Western achievement, biology is not destiny. Biology is not destiny. Biology is not destiny. Save me from these. New entry. My sacred Tuesday, given over to that cunt, and cunt has never been so right a word, for the right bitch, the bitch of rightness. She has me by the balls. She's got what's inside them inside her. She, I call, and she doesn't reproach me for not calling. She doesn't want to see me. She says she doesn't not want to see me. She doesn't see the point of seeing me. Point? But she agreed to meet. We sat outside, a sidewalk, cornily enough, cafe. Like two lovers, like a pair of lovers, a small round table and our legs twined around wrought iron legs like vines, our fingers twined around thick porcelain, hot, cappuccino in mine with cocoa sprinkled on the foam, steamed milk, annoyingly enough, in hers. She wore a thin dress with flowers on it, sandals with heels and bare legs, good legs, what a waste. At first I thought she was being conciliatory, I was getting somewhere. She smiled in a dim, sleepy way. She answered slowly, with uncharacteristic slowness. She yawned. Am I boring you, I asked. She laughed and put her hand on my arm. But it was only to take my hand and place it on her belly. Ugh. I think I can feel it, she said. I think I feel something. I snatched my hand back. I thought I was getting somewhere, but I thought this only because an impenetrable wall has gone up that shields us both from her sharpness and my urgency. Bulletproof glass, nursery glass. She's shut the barn door and isn't even looking for the horse. The Red Sea has closed. This is one Jew boy who won't be saved. I, of all the Jews, will not be passed over. The peacefulness of her smile is doom. She looks at me with open trust, hardly a trace of Celia's skepticism. She doesn't see me. But something gets through, I guess, because she tells me she's entered a new phase. I didn't realize how disastrous, how literal a phase she meant for quite a while. She let me talk. Oh, she let me go on. All with that kitty in the cream smile, dreamy, self-satisfied, friendly. It's the latest thing, you know, I was telling her to have a baby. Have you looked on the streets? Scads, mothers, babies, etc. All my brilliant aperçus of, in fact, Tuesday, of, in fact, my brilliant diary. But she only smiled mildly. For once I'll be in fashion, she said, not connecting, not sarcastic. I ranted on, the baby stores, the teeming park, single, boring motherhood. She was no more than the bad dream of a dozing living section, I told her. She looked alert at that. I thought you didn't read the Times, she said. I'm taking a page from your rag, I said to Ms. Not on the Rag. I'm not doing this to be trendy, she says, though there is a baby boom on. I won't pretend not to know it. She contemplated her belly, only the smallest hump under her thin dress. She placed her hand over it as though to protect it from our respective gazes. I've always wanted to have a baby, she said. She looked up, grinning. And I couldn't be so unfashionable as to have an abortion. She said it was her prerogative as a pregnant woman to be irrational. I told her, errat away. Couldn't she enjoy the prerogative without the crutch of pregnancy? I suggested she see a Reikian shrink. The mind is the body, she said dreamily, and then the next time I looked, she was asleep, out, nodding off at the table, 
her hand dangling like a wilting rose, the same peaceful, dreamy smile fading from her face as, without consciousness, expression drained from it to make the perfect expression of vacancy. Even as I watched, she sank into some deeper, more remote region of goo-goo dreamland, peopled, no doubt, if people can be the right word, with gooey, downy toddlers and soft-skinned cooing things. Her hand slipped off the table, taking a spoon with it so that it leapt against the thick white china, rebounded, thwonked the unconscious chin, and hit the pavement with a tinny scrape, tolling some dim alarm in the maddening, hopeful nest of mother-to-behood. What, she said? Coming to, blossoming like the proverbial rose, expanding in pink with sleep, the black eyes too sleepy and baffled to munch, she said, they say this sleepiness is supposed to go away by the end of the first trimester. First trimester, I said, wait a minute. You're talking about the first three months of pregnancy? The time after which, if I remember correctly, you can't have an abortion. I told you, Tony, you didn't call for a long time. You just said, get out the violin when I said it. You're not having a baby for revenge, are you, I said. That really would be crazy. As irrational as you can get, I told her. The black moths fluttered, came alive, locked. I was going to go through with it, she said. I really was. I had ruled out the possibility. I knew what I had to do. I was going to be my usual responsible self. And then... Maybe it's the enlightening exa example of your splendid selfishness, Tony. I just thought, why not? Why not? I want this. And you will make a good father, biologically. She looked me up and down with something like love, the black eyes on my skin like kisses, and she repeated biologically, appropriatively. I didn't expect it to make me so tired, she went on. I haven't been able to do anything. It's like narc her head began to wilt again. Celia, I said, Alepsi, she finished. I made you decide this? I did, by showing up? She nodded her head sleepily. Do you mind, she said, putting her head on my lap? Yes, I said, pushing her off. But she crossed her arms on her chair back and rested her head there. I'm too tired, Tony. You can do whatever you want. Your, she waved one of her sleepy pillows from under her head. Job is over. I have called Celia an intellectual terrorist. She does go too far with things, far too far. Past three months, I can see that my job has just begun. Amy Ehrlich was my editor at Dial for many years for several books, and when she said she was going to leave her job and become a writer, I felt, I guess, at first despair, oh my God, one of my few good editors is leaving, and then that sort of sadistic pleasure that writers get, like now she'll know what it's really like from the other side. Um, I really thought Amy's novel was wonderful, and it struck me that it was interestingly like a novel she said she ha she hadn't read uh, anywhere but here and that it was about a mother and daughter relationship seen in a very unsentimental way a mother who was very conflicted and tormented about her role but very attached to her daughter I saw a movie recently an Australian movie called High Tide which also dealt with some of these themes and it seems to me interesting that 
This is now coming out in young adult fiction, which has tended, at least in the past decades, to avoid troublesome relationships and perhaps to steer over to books that have happy endings. I think Amy's book is distinctive because it tells the truth about the way people relate to each other. Part of the book I'm going to read, the name of the book is Where It Stops, Nobody Knows. And it's about a mother and daughter, as Norma said, who move all the time. The part of the book that I'm going to read is in the middle, and they're living in Logan, Utah. They've moved from Montpelier, Vermont. The girl's name is Nina. Her mother's name is Joyce. And Joyce works the night shift on the newspaper. At this point in the story, the girl has been grounded. That is to say, she's been punished by being made to stay home. She's been defiant to her mother. However, she's decided to sneak out to go to a breakfast birthday party with her friends. The other characters that come up in this part are a boy named Daryl Carpenter, who Nina has had a crush on, and he's a member of a sort of a counterculture group in the school that, that are called rockers. He's a rocker, whereas her friends are more respectable. Um, and the other character is Silky, who's Nina's dog. <coughs> I woke up and looked at the green glowing numbers on my alarm clock. It was 4.30 in the morning. No wonder it was still dark. Today was Nancy's breakfast party. And I'd been so worried about getting up on time that I really hadn't slept all night. All around me, the house felt silent and spooky and empty. Joyce was away at work. Silky, silky, I whispered, and was relieved to hear her yawn and stretch somewhere in my room. I knew the doors were locked and I was completely safe, but still. Part of my nervousness, I think, came from having to sneak around to go to Nancy's party. I'm not one of those kids who easily breaks rules. I wasn't used to them because Joyce had never really given me any rules before. You're so grown up for your age, Nina. I'll just expect you home on time, she'd say. Sometimes it was still hard for me to believe how things had changed between us. I lay in bed a while, feeling my mind dart around in a hundred different directions. Then I realized I'd never fall back to sleep, so I got up and turned on my light. I'd planned to get up at 5.30 anyway. I got dressed slowly and took a tour around to make sure everything looked as though I'd left the house at the regular time. Then I put my present for Nancy into my school bag and stepped out through the door. The sky was cloudy and it was beginning to get light. There wasn't a soul in sight. I walked through our neighborhood and studied all the little houses to see if I could find any signs that Darrell might live in one. I don't know what I was looking for. His name on the mailbox, maybe, or a motorcycle parked out front. I wasn't sure he had a motorcycle. I just imagined that he might. We'd had one other conversation since our first one. I'd asked how his brother was feeling, and Darrell said his father had taken him to the doctor that day. His brother was in sixth grade, and his name was Joel. I liked to think Darrell was worried about his brother, but trying not to show it. In that conversation, he'd been much friendlier to me. And even though I couldn't fit it in with the rest of my life in Logan, 
I still imagined us walking around town, holding hands and telling our secrets to each other. I wondered if he had a mother or why his father had been the one to take Joel to the doctor. Maybe his family was weird in some way too. My trip to Nancy's house took me through the center of town and right past the Mormon temple. You couldn't possibly miss this structure. It was about five stories taller than any other building in Logan and it stood by itself high on a hill. Other churches had one spire, but the temple had two. I'm not sure why. In over a half hour of walking, I hadn't seen anyone at all, but now the street was filled with people. There were, I'd say, close to 50 people milling around, carrying small suitcases and valises, and calling greetings to each other in the still air. Cars and even buses were double parked in front of the temple, and the whole place looked like a giant terminal with passengers coming and going. This was really something. I'd have to ask Nancy just what these Mormons were doing at 6.30 in the morning. Her house was on a street that looked a lot like ours. It had the same small houses with big yards set back from the sidewalk. But I was surprised to see three sheep grazing on her lawn. Some people in Logan kept farm animals, but I didn't know Nancy's family did. She hadn't mentioned it. I checked my watch as I came up her front walk. I was exactly on time. Her mother opened the door before I even knocked, putting her finger on her lips to let me know I should be quiet. In the living room, four little kids, two boys and two girls, were sitting on the couch. I guess they were Nancy's brothers and sisters, though nobody said a word. A few minutes later, Janice, Laureen, and Doris arrived together, and we all tiptoed up the stairs to Nancy's room. She must have shared it with her sisters because there were two other beds, but what amazed me was that the beds were already made. The bedspreads and the pillowcases had a strawberry shortcake theme, and the walls of the room were bright pink. I was glad I'd bought a pink cinch belt for Nancy. I hadn't been sure if she'd like something so feminine. Yesterday at school, we decided to wake her up by singing Happy Birthday to You, but before we could begin, Nancy's mother surprised everyone by passing around kazoos. Kazoos are little metal instruments, sort of like whistles. She showed us how to hold them in our mouths and whispered that we should just sing through them. The tune sounded like happy birthday all right, but the words were louder and they hummed and vibrated. When Nancy woke up, she looked really panicked, like, what's going on in here? Where am I? Is this outer space or what? We all cracked up and then Nancy got out of bed and she laughed too. Do I really have to wear my nightgown? Can I just brush my teeth, she asked but really she knew the rules for breakfast parties. Her little brothers and sisters were gone by the time we went downstairs, and we all piled into their car, a big rattly station wagon. Well, they needed it for that family. Outside, a light rain had started falling. I was sitting in the front seat between Nancy and her mother, and I felt entirely happy and as if everyone there liked me. The word carefree came into my mind, free of cares. The McDonald's in Logan was like every other McDonald's I'd ever been to. It even smelled the same, like moist hamburger buns. Someone once told me that they had a special spray they used to make that smell, but I found it hard to believe. Why bother? We sat down at two tables next to each other, and Nancy and her mother went up to the counter to get our breakfasts. We'd all decided to have egg McMuffins, hot chocolate, and orange juice. I thought Nancy was brave to walk across the crowded restaurant dressed in her nightgown, but either people didn't notice or they were just being polite by not staring at her. 
At this hour, it was mainly adults on their way to work. A lot of people were lined up to take food out. Probably they were going to eat at their desks. We'd just gotten our food when I happened to look outside through the plate glass window. Two men and a woman were getting out of a car. The woman's head was turned toward one of the men, and he had his hand on her waist. Then she looked up, and I saw that it was Joyce. I felt as if I'd been socked in the stomach. Suddenly all the sound in the restaurant vanished. My friends were talking and laughing, but I could not hear them. Suspecting nothing, they were unwrapping their sandwiches and sipping their hot chocolate. Joyce and the men stood at the counter only ten feet away. I sat there and waited, staring at my food. Irrelevantly, it occurred to me that I'd had nothing to eat since last night. Nancy had put all her presents in a pile on the table. Right on top was the cinch belt that I'd given her, the cinch belt Joyce had given me. This was really a nightmare. Now Joyce was walking over to our table. I could see her stocking legs approaching, scissoring back and forth. Hello, everyone, she said. I'm Nina's mother. I looked up then and saw not so much Joyce as the two men with her. They were both wearing white shirts and ties, but the ties were loose at their throats and their shirt sleeves were rolled up. At this moment, I couldn't recall which one had been touching Joyce. Would you like to sit down, Mrs. Lewis, said Nancy. Did Nina tell you we were coming to McDonald's? Oh, yes, she told me everything. Joyce's smile was so false it was frightening. But of course, no one but me knew what her real smile looked like. I'd like to borrow Nina for just a minute, if I may, she said. We went past the table where the two men were eating. They had huge breakfasts. It would take them a long time to finish. My daughter Nina, said Joyce. Let's get this over with, I thought. But as soon as we were outside, she grabbed me by the shoulders and began shaking me back and forth over and over again. Do you know how angry I am? Do you? Do you? She screamed. It was like the two of us were locked in some kind of crazy dance in the parking lot of McDonald's. I stood there in full view of my friends with my head wobbling on my neck and cars and people skipping around in my field of vision, hating her with all my might. There, are you satisfied now, she screamed. From inside the restaurant, the two men had somehow appeared, and they came up to Joyce and led her over to their car. Go on back inside, one of them told me. Just before they drove away, I saw Joyce's face behind the windshield and realized she was crying. In a way, that shocked me more than anything, but I was crying too. My friends were all pressed up against the window watching, but when I looked at them, they went and sat down as if nothing had happened. Nancy beckoned to me. The idea of explaining or even going back inside seemed impossible, but I certainly wasn't going home. I sat down on a bench next to the restaurant and waited, trying to calm down. After a while, Nancy's mother came out, carrying a white paper bag. Your breakfast was getting cold, so we got you this to eat in the car on the way to school. Are you all right, she added. I nodded, grateful for her kindness. Nancy was always kind, too. I realized then that no one was going to force me to explain anything or even refer to what had happened, but it didn't matter. Now these girls had terrible evidence, proof that my life was not normal, not like theirs at all. And even though they might be kind, in that moment as the car splashed through the shiny rainy streets and all five of us sat with our hands in our laps saying nothing, I made up my mind that I could not be friends with any of them again. I was too ashamed. In the afternoon, when I got out of school, our van was parked outside near all the waiting buses. I can't say I was surprised. As I walked over to it, Joyce leaned across the front seat and opened the door on the passenger side. 
I'm sorry, she said before I even got in. I never should have lost control of myself that's, that way. That's okay. It was me that broke my punishment. All day at school, I'd been thinking about Joyce. I felt a real coldness in my heart when I remembered her hands on me, but I decided I had to get along with her. I wasn't going to run away and live on the streets of Salt Lake City, that was for sure. And I didn't want any more fights or punishments right now when my life was changing so fast. Today after lunch, I'd spent time with Daryl Carpenter. It was easy. I kept thinking of how I couldn't have my friends now anyway. Then I just walked up to Daryl on the playground where he was standing with two girl rockers and said, Hi, how are you? He seemed surprised to see me and looked around, craning his neck in an exaggerated way. Where are Nancy Rudolph and Doris? I don't think I recognize you alone. Don't be silly, I said. You see me alone all the time. The two girl rockers were watching me and they didn't seem very friendly, but I wasn't going to let that bother me. Do you want to walk around in front of school, I said. With Daryl, I had the feeling I could do anything I wanted and it wouldn't matter. That might sound conceited, but really it was just the opposite. He stood back and took a good look at me. I held my breath and waited for him to decide my fate. I was glad I'd worn nice clothes because of Nancy's party. Sure, why not, he said at last. It wasn't like anything special happened on our walk. The grass was wet from the rain and we couldn't go far. But a lot of people saw us together and that was what really mattered. That and the last thing he'd said to me. You're really pretty even if you do look about 10 years old. As Joyce and I rode home in the van, I opened the glove compartment to see if my makeup case was still in it. When we were traveling, one of the things I did to make the time pass was to practice putting makeup on. Good, it was still in there and nothing had spilled or melted. From now on, I planned to wear makeup to school in Logan. I'd always worn it in Montpelier anyway. I wouldn't have to put on ugly black lines or heavy foundation like the girls with Daryl. I was much more skillful than that. Just some violet eyeshadow to bring out my eyes <coughs> and blusher for my cheekbones and across my forehead the way Joyce had shown me. At least it would make me look older. As we were coming up to our street, she slowed way down as if she wanted to make the ride last longer. We were barely moving, but no cars were behind us. Can we just forget what happened today, Nina, she said. That was just what I wanted, too. I saw two girls younger than me in about fifth or sixth grade skating down the sidewalk. They were holding hands with each other and going as fast as they could. But why won't you let me do things with my friends from school, I asked. What's so bad about it? For once, I was more curious than anything else. I really wanted to know what was on Joyce's mind. I just worry, she said. I don't want anything to happen to you. In case you don't realize it, kiddo, you're all I've got. Nothing's going to happen to me. That's what you think, said Joyce. You have no idea of the dangers of the world. Both of us got out of the van and slammed the doors. I don't know what dangers she meant. All I could picture was Daryl Carpenter's face. I first met Barbara Jones in the slush pile at Grand Street magazine where I was working as a uh, reader there. Um, her story was notable for the fact that it was not only good, but it was funny, too. And 
I showed it to my editor there. It wasn't taken. <laughs> but her name came up again a few months later, actually. She had just finished Columbia, and she was looking for a job. And at that time, I was leaving Grand Street. Um, and I remembered her story. So we Ben decided to see her. Of course, she came in. <laughs> it was um, for the first time I'd seen someone out of the slush pile in the flesh. <laughs> um, anyway, eventually Barbara took, took my place. And one of her stories um, was published in Grand Street this fall. I read the story, which she's going to read tonight, um, when I was in Italy this fall myself, and it came out. And it was um, wonderful, I thought. Uh, it reminded me, possibly since I was across the ocean, very much of America. <laughs> but th the, the humor was still there, and there was something very special and rare about it. Um, that's all I'm going to say, so she can have the, the whole time to read. Barbara Jim. Um, can you hear me? Wow. Okay. This story is called Help. It was Sunday morning. The meeting room was jammed. A young person swayed from side to side in every seat in every row of 17 rows of beige metal folding chairs. Everyone sang. Everyone clapped hands on the offbeats. And every two measures, there was a giant syncopated stomp, 300 pairs of winter boots on blue-green indoor-outdoor carpeting. Seek, and ye shall find. Knock, and the door shall be opened. Ask, and it shall be given, and the love comes a-tumbling down. The boys' football and basketball teams were here, the girls' basketball team, a few soccer players of either sex. Some of the druggies were also here, with their safety pin earrings and locks of blue or lavender hair. Emmy sat about two-thirds of the way back in the room. Far up front, the cheerleading squad from Emmy's school, Eastern Junior High, and cheerleaders from Whittier and from Franklin whirled in a line in their pleated skirts, slapping their saddle shoes on the dais, clasping their arms high over their heads. They had unified their different school uniforms by twining their braids and tying their ponytails with hair ribbons of a particular baby blue hue. The cinder block walls of the meeting room were exactly the same color. A young black man named Hayes Harris played an electric piano on the floor at the foot of the platform. Seek, and ye shall find. Knock, and the door shall be opened. On the word knock, the cheerleaders rapped at a huge imaginary door in the air. This unison awed Emmy, this singing so strong. Everyone, herself included, sang full out. They were one voice and the thump of their feet on the carpet made the beat of a single, mighty, baby-blue heart. In a few hours, they would leave the Laurel Town Inn, 
boarding seven yellow Chicopee Bus Company buses back to the Philadelphia suburbs where they lived. Emmy was on the Bethlehem Winter Youth Retreat because Lucille from history class had invited her and Louisa Sanders, a cheerleader who had never previously deigned to speak to Emmy, had put her arms around Emmy's shoulders in the cafeteria and said how much fun it would be if Emmy could go. Louisa also said there would be boys at Bethlehem, popular boys. Emmy had always gotten her teasing from not-so-popular boys, Bobby McNamara, Isaac Berger, Harry Nair. Only last week, Emmy's sister, Louie, 11 years, had made up a song in the car called Emmy Loves Harry, and Mother, driving, had turned and snapped into the back seat, Nobody Loves Anybody. Emmy had slouched against the door while Mother drove on. She played a game, thinking, instant, instant, noticing how as soon as she thought the word, the real instant was gone. The Laureltown Inn was a 100-room hotel of pale, clay-colored brick and white woodwork. Some of the retreaters had been with their families to the modest ski slopes nearby, and though the inn itself didn't have a ski area, there were acres of snow-covered grounds outside. Paths wound around the building and through the fields, long snow-plowed curves lined with evergreen trees. All of the people here had played Captured the Flag yesterday. Fifteen teams had, seemingly at once, come running down out of the woods, everyone hopping on and off the rocks, skipping, weaving around the trees, 15 long, single-file lines heading for a yellow cloth on the ground, all eyes moist and wide, all boots muddy and blue jeans wet with snow. When Emmy fell, someone from behind had pulled her standing by the hood of her coat. When they returned to their rooms, they found their beds already made. Emmy's school copy of Romeo and Juliet, she must have kicked it down around her feet in the night, was placed carefully on her pillow. The beds of the inn were clean and warm, three to a room for the Bethlehem crowd, twin beds with a cot set up between. Doors were thrown open up and down the halls and between some of the rooms. Everyone laid wet socks and scarves along the baseboard heater to dry. Lucille was singing, we're going to the chapel and we're going to get married. They'd all eaten meatloaf together last night and lemon meringue pie. At breakfast, there were skits and games, and you could eat anything, bacon and eggs, snack pack cereals, French toast. When the singing in the meeting room ended, Bob Norton, the minister, stood where the cheerleaders had been, holding his paperback, New Testament, good news for modern man. We've done a lot of talking and having a good time this weekend, and any of you who didn't know before know now that Jesus Christ is your Savior. He died for you, Bob said. If you invite him into your heart, you will be reborn. You will have eternal life. Just as when a baby is born, it can never after return back into its mother's body, so you will always be reborn. There will be no going back. No matter what you do, Bob said, you will have eternal life. When Emmy got home from the weekend, it was the middle of Sunday dinner. She sat down to eat with a new copy of the four Gospels hidden under the table in her lap. She had been away only since Friday, but she felt her whole life had changed. Louie, who had a man-in-the-moon face like Daddy's, 
and hair cut short like a boy's, was leaning her elbows on the table, her face on one fist. She looked as if she'd been crying. And Jim, five years old, sat across from Emmy, just his shoulders and his head appearing above the table. Emmy knew she was supposed to witness for the Lord, supposed to tell what had happened to her. She looked for an opening. They sat around the table on olive velvet dining chairs. You did get some air, Daddy said. He passed the mashed potatoes bowl to Emmy with one of his big hands. He was a big German man. Emmy knew that when he was her age, he had gone on Lutheran church weekends outside Frankfurt, Germany, that had been mostly hiking and fresh air, with a few memorized prayers thrown in about the goodness of healthy exercise. This wasn't primarily an athletic weekend, Emmy said. Oh, Daddy said. Mother stood circling the table with a bowl and a dance serving spoon, offering the bulk of some soggy tan cauliflower to Emmy, dividing the remaining trees into seconds on every person's plate. Emmy tried to liken Mother to a disciple dispensing fish. <laughs> well, did you sing then, Daddy said. He was cutting Jim's hamburger for him with a knife and fork. Yes, we sang. We sang a lot. And they gave me a book. Emmy touched the paper of the four Gospels in her lap. She thought this was her moment. I can't do anything, Louis said. There, Jim, Daddy said, now chew. You can do whatever you want, Mother said to Louis. You're a smart girl. I can't go horseback riding, you said, Louis said. She was rubbing the back of her spoon into her potatoes without looking at what she was doing. Dinner turned out to be the same as any Sunday dinner. Emmy's family said and did the same things they always said and did. And Emmy was exactly the same as always with them. She did not know how to say something that would bring them nearer to her. Mother and Daddy, both lawyers, had bought their turn-of-the-century house in the late 1970s when its old Philadelphia neighborhood had still been ghetto fringe. The place had front and back staircases, a defunct electric buzzer for calling servants, and a stone living room fireplace so big that Mother could walk into it. After dinner, Emmy climbed the back stairs to her room and sat against the wall on her twin bed with her legs sticking straight out. She found her pledge on a piece of paper in her pocket and put it beside her on the bedspread. She said, Jesus, help me not to be hurt that my family has not changed that though I am changing, they are the same. This was her first prayer alone, away from Bethlehem. And this was the beginning of her success with prayer. She found she had an aptitude for it. She would say, Oh God, don't let me be hurt by what Margaret Acker just said about my hair. <laughs> and then she really would not feel hurt. She went on the spring youth weekend to the one-week summer camp at Blue Mountain, and many times to Bethlehem Church itself. Every Thursday morning at 6.30 a.m. before school, Bethlehem had a pancake breakfast. One time, Bob Norton promised to swallow two live goldfish if the Bethlehem youth signed 300 people for a breakfast. The youth delivered, and early one Thursday, 346 people watched Bob stand on the stage in the Bethlehem basement and pay up. Bob's face turned green. One time, Bob set a huge pad of paper on an easel and wrote the words agape and eros in thick magic marker. He explained what each word meant, then he put a big X through eros. There was always something going on at Bethlehem. 
Once a month, there was a social, like the roller skating revelry or the bowling bash. And Emmy was part of an agape group with seven other junior high girls and a counselor, Susan, a pretty brunette who was a sophomore at UPenn. The agape girls hugged Emmy when they saw her in the halls at school, said kind things to her always, threw her a slumber party on her birthday, and called her when it snowed to offer her a ride in their parents' cars. One time, she rode to Thursday breakfast on the back of Lucille's brother's motorcycle, one arm around her books, one arm around Lucille's brother, her frizzy brown hair lifting off from the back of her neck in the wind. In late fall, gathering notebooks into her arms, rising at the bell to leave French, Emmy noticed a blur of pink on her curved peach plastic seat and sat down again. When the rest of class was gone, she knelt on the floor beside the shallow molded chair and wiped the pink swirl onto a piece of notebook paper, spitting on the paper the way Mother spit on a handkerchief before he wi she wiped Jimmy's face. Emmy was not the kind of girl who got pains. She looked at girls bent over with pains and didn't quite believe them. The thing she felt was how she could walk around the house and up and down the halls at school, bleeding inside her clothes, and no one knew. But she didn't name this feeling to herself, and she didn't pray about it. She prayed not to want Timothy Holland to like her more than he liked Nancy Hagner. She prayed to get straight A's. You say, God, please help me get straight A's, she told Louie, to whom she'd confided about Bethlehem. And then, since you're working hard and you're not worrying, you just get straight A's, or whatever's reasonable to ask for. I've always been pretty good in school, so straight A's is reasonable to ask for. I'd want him to get me something unreasonable, Louis said. <laughs> a little over a year after Emmy's first Bethlehem winter youth retreat, she was on a second one. On Saturday night, two counselors did a skit about how a midget starts his day. One counselor stood behind a table with a skirt around it, her arms through pant legs, her hands in shoes. She was the midget's head, torso, and legs. The other counselor hid behind her and reached his hands through a smock to be the midget's arms. When the midget tried to shave, he got shaving cream in his hair. When he ate from a bowl of cereal, he put the spoon in his nose. Milk, Cheerios, and shaving cream spilled across the table, the table's skirt, the dais floor. Everyone laughed and clapped. The midget did a soft shoe at the end. After the skit, Hayes Harris sang the theme song from the movie Tootsie, which goes, Something's telling me it might be you all my life. He explained that he liked the song because it expressed his relationship with Jesus Christ. On Sunday morning, Mike Peckham stood up out of a part of the packed room that was mostly boys. He was in the ninth grade, but he was older than that, 16. At first, he just stood and didn't say anything. Then he put his hand on his forehead and shuddered quietly. Then he just out and out started crying, and Mark Spence and Greg Euding, sitting on either side of him, reached up and clutched hold of Mike's pant legs while, like Mike was the trudging pioneer woman at the painting in the Philadelphia post office near Emmy's home, and the other boys were his children. Then a whole circle of guys around Mike started to cry too, and for a while, he just stood there, and his section of the room just cried. This is Mike Peckham, Bob said. All the girls in Emmy's agape group, including their counselor, Susan, sat in a row alongside Emmy. The hands on Mike's legs let go, patted him, grabbed hold again. Mike, Bob said. 
Mike said finally, I've done every bad thing you can do. Mike's family's house had burned down and lots of Bethlehem families had offered to take him in when, after his family moved to a new place, his own parents had kicked him out. But he stole things. He drank everyone's liquor. Some persons have been very kind to me and I have not appreciated it, Mike said. Even Bob took him in for a while. Bob set up rules like stay out of other people's wallets, no drinking, recognize that you have a problem with drinking, you have to go to school every day unless you are in bed sick, and you have to go to church on Sunday. When Mike broke the school rule, Bob kicked him out. And I have lusted after girls. I have hurt girls, Mike said. Mark and Greg and some other boys over there went demented crying at this. <laughs> at the boating battalion, Mike had kayaked among the girls' boats, tipping them over. He even tipped over Deborah Walker, a serious, heavy girl who couldn't swim. Two strong swimmers and a floating seat cushion had kept Deborah from going down. I'm sorry, girls, Mike said, and I have abused my body with drinking and with coke, LSD, heroin, angel dust, and I haven't spent any qua, qua, quiet times, quiet prayer times, Bob said, for the edification of first-time retreaters. A few of the girls in Emmy's row were crying. But I know that Christ died for me now, and I love him. Mike broke down again. And, Bob said, and Mike. I invite him into my heart. Mike was sobbing and sobbing. He sat down. Crying cracked the room. Amen, Bob said. Amen, amen. While Emmy thought and rethought of all the things Mike was, all the things he'd done. They thrilled her. She remembered the moment in her canoe at the boating battalion when she'd watched Mike paddling like fury, girls screaming and tipping over on either side of him. Sometimes they tipped themselves over in panic, splashes going off like mines. When Mike set his course for Emmy's boat, she had t turned around and stroked and stroked. Then Mike had tipped over Deborah Walker, and everything stopped. Now a chant went up, Isaiah 40, Isaiah 40, and everyone sang, they shall run and not be weary, they shall walk and not faint, they shall mount up like eagles. In row upon row in front of Emmy, kids rocked to and fro, whole columns of oscillating torsos and clapping hands. Emmy's own group had figured out how to clap with their arms entwined at the elbows, but Emmy wasn't singing. In a fantasy, she knelt in a canoe, facing Mike Peckham, barely moving. She pulled her paddle out of the water and laid across the sides. When the song ended, before Bob could say a word, the entire front row stood up, bowing their heads, clasping their copies of Good News. It was a chain reaction, like dominoes, or like toast popping in the world's largest toaster, row upon full row, springing up until every person stood, Emmy stood, too. It always took a long time for the rows of people to empty into the aisles, and the aisles of people to empty through the three rear baby blue doors. Upstairs, they would have prayer meetings in their groups. But while they stood in rows, waiting, no one talked much. They were just standing, not thinking. Louisa and Lucille moved into the current. In a while, there was room for Susan, 
but whenever a place appeared for Emmy, she let someone go by. She let Sarah Ann go ahead. She let Christine get by. She didn't want to go home. She didn't want to go upstairs either. She let everyone who was behind her go ahead of her into the aisle. She saw the boys counselor named Perry stop against the wall to let people through. He slapped guys on the shoulders as they passed, cupped his big hands on the back of their necks and squeezed. His shoulders were wider than anyone's. He wore a jersey that accentuated this. Soon the room was almost empty except for clumps at the door and one senior winding cable on the stage with Hayes Harris, packing up. When Emmy stepped into the aisle, Perry looked down at her. He was so close she could smell the soap he used. He slapped her on the shoulder and told her she was a really great kid. When I was in college, the professor spent a whole hour explaining that literature was really a game of tennis. He had the serve, the fault, double fault, the passing shot, the lob, the alley, the forecourt. He had the whole thing worked out. We were dazzled but incredulous. But I didn't know how full of bull he was until I met Ralph Savarese. Ralph's a nationally ranked collegiate tennis player. He does that with one hand, and with the other hand he writes poems. The relation is mystifying. The kind of energy that a champion would need in the tennis court comes across in his poems, an extraordinary, bounteous, bouncing energy. At the same time, a real commitment, a sense of form, but also that sort of abandon, that sort of willingness to take risks, which I suppose in that movie Wall Street, which I haven't seen yet, is called ambition, but a very kind of noble ambition when directed towards the higher end, the end of literature, never mind the professor, is extremely impressive. He's willing to take risks. It's a poetry that seems at times perhaps hard to get hold of, but it's told in a diction which is ours, although in a set of values which seem, well, maybe in a sense different, since they're old-fashioned, they're theologic, they're theurgic, and they're entirely respectful. They're respectful in the sense that I remember the man who introduced me to New York, Richard Blackmer, some years ago, used a phrase in talking about another young man's poem, Shakespeare's Sonnets. He said, love is the simple truth achieved. And underneath the, the wit, the coruscating irony, the sense of satire, the sense of outrage at the distortions of the world in which it wasn't Ralph's or our idea ourselves to come in, but in which he has been born, which he has to deal with, underneath all that, is the wonderful and beautiful passion and compassion, which makes it a pleasure to present Ralph Savarese. Well, that's hard to uh, hard to read after that. <laughs> Very hard. Um, the first poem I'd like to read is entitled "Poetic Justice." The End and the Edge, and it's after the Mayanus Bridge disaster that happened a couple of years ago in uh, Connecticut. In, uh, a friend, a good friend of my good friends, was one of the first people to come to the edge of the bridge without going over. 
and she got out of her car and immediately started waving her arms frantically to stop the oncoming cars. A car with three teenage boys in it approached her at about 60 miles an hour, gave her the finger, thinking she was a stranded motorist, went over the edge, and died. This poem was entitled Poetic Justice, The End and the Edge. Had the boys not died, they might have said, we gave her the finger just for the hell of it, just to be cool, or to be mean, I guess. From a distance, she looked like an octopus, or a windmill, or a small bird hovering above the bridge. We're not bad guys, you know. We're not evil. We didn't really mean it. You have to believe us. As we passed, simply a stranded motorist, a housewife in curlers, a modern-day damsel in distress. You have to believe us. We didn't really mean it. How beneath the midday sun could the boy's judgment have been so amiss, even with the music blasting, the alcohol, the fierce desire to take a piss? Imagine the shock for that poor woman standing on the edge of the bridge, her face flushed, her arms flailing wildly in a frantic attempt to point out the abyss. Wasn't it Sophocles who first discovered, first wrote about, the perilous impasse of hubris? Poetic hubris, a vision of Sophocles standing on the edge of the bridge, standing peacefully. Discern the end for yourselves, he insists, the end in the edge. Discern the end. The mind's brake lights flash immediately. The woman isn't Sophocles. The boys aren't Oedipus. Life isn't a tragedy. How could I forget? Still, what did our would-be hero think, reflect, as the car-born boys plummeted to their deaths? plummeted the heart cries into that great river of neglect, brake lights flashing the whole way down, regret, regret. Did she look up at the heavens and genuflect, applaud, scream, consider joining the boys for a swim, having been once, I imagine, a medal-winning Olympian? Did she understand, finally, her predicament, the poet's perilous chore, to balance disbelief and meaning with a taste, a temptation for metaphor? Or did her mind simply pall, turn the whole thing into an anecdote, a yarn against antipathy, a cocktail tasting antivenin? The endless search for the mind's antivenin, poetic impasse, existential antipathy, for weeks a desire to write in praise of irony. The misanthrope has laughed, the cynic, the unbeliever, believes in God again. Justice takes a capital J. There is no justice, you would say. No God. There is only art and love, of course. Well, let's be artful then. Artful and loving all the way. Let's make the scene even more ironic, more absurd than it already is. As if in irony we'd suddenly found a passage back to God, an infinite highway, a shortcut home. The more appalling the irony, the longer, more smo smoother the road, and not as the unbelievers proclaimed, a country or kingdom, a fate that, like explorers, we chose to settle for, settle in. For example, the song the boys were trumpeting, the careworn mother stood attending, were now on land and sea descending, where all my heart this night rejoices. But first, let's fix ourselves a drink. 
Another appalling randomness, please. Catcher in the rye with a twist. Coming right up, the mind's bartender replies. Existentialist that he is. Now drink in hand, let's write. As if the world and its woe were inside the car. As if three boys had actually woken up God. Three boys, not Hitler, mind you. Not Belsen, not Auschwitz. The human race has come too far. Attempted at last an ignoble coup. The father nailed to the hood of the car. The angels yawping, taboo, taboo. Like inconsolable children, the poets yawp, boo-hoo, boo-hoo. No matter how ironic, how stiff, another appalling randomness, we can't get home from school. Even God's death, the teacher remarks, is an assumption that must be proved. Again and again, the highway ends, the poem collapses. Somebody's baby boy is found blue. And yet, and yet, the heart objects. In a world where bridges and poems are fixed, but not the stars, even the heart must one day conclude. Sooner or later, all bodies become unglued. And it's uh, about the, the, the board game of the same name. Um, it's a game that my family played religiously um, on New Year's. We, we, we'd wait for the New Year to play this game. A couple of things you might, for those of you who don't know the game, it's a, it's a, the board is a map of the world, and you, uh, you accumulate armies in your attempt to, to conquer the world and uh, beat your other family members. Um, <laughs> Want, uh, it's a game played with dice. There's a lot of risk involved and uh, luck involved. And uh, there's a reference to a match, which is uh, uh, their cards are dealt out. And if the three cards are horsemen, foot soldiers, and cannons. And if you get three of the kind, three of a kind, or three different, of, three different ones, you get more armies to help you in your 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 conquest. Um, and for those of you who don't know, box cards are double sixes. Risk, a game for two or more players. The new year comes like a solicitation, pushy as hell. Hope's top salesman is risen from the dead, Guy Lombardo pawning a past and a piece of waterfront property. Hang up, the mother says, cornered in New Guinea with nothing but nerves and fate to protect her. The father revels in the mother's imminent defeat, desecrating her dead like a vengeful and prodigious Achilles. The mother plays with grave intention, as though the future were at stake, as though the flat world between them were really her past, or even her body, which by conquering she could change. In every war there's a turning point, said Douglas MacArthur, and this war is difficult to peg. Every year the family hovers above the map like ornery strategists, gods of estrangement, their armies scattered across the once beautiful domain. Eyes, mouth, chest, and loins. Every year the dice pelt the board like comets or meteors. The two sons are wiped out early. The daughter marches off to her room, the victim of a broken treaty. As the throngs on television prepare to sing, led now by a mawkish and balding rock star, and as the father pours the champagne, the mother broods over the irascible world the desperately spurious armies. 
Then lifting her head as Atlas once lifted the heavens, descries the dim universe that is her kitchen. The future is a satellite orbiting the past, she exclaims, an exhausted Skylab falling to Earth. She remembers her babies now in college. Soon she'll be a grandmother. Remembers her days on the Merv Griffin show, getting married and moving to Michigan. I am the future suspended above myself. To prolong the war, she needs a match, a lonely horseman or foot soldier. She imagines the rebels in Afghanistan, artful David in the Valley of Elah. To win a train of boxcars so long it would take an hour to pass. Still, as the father attacks her, she leans on the parapet of possibility, and catching her breath, she rolls. The next poem I'd like to read is entitled Loon's Water, and it's about growing up on the Potomac River in Virginia in a house my parents built. Um, there's a reference to the, uh, I guess it's another thing that's falling. Um, the, a, plane, a plane that crashed uh, a number of years ago, it hit the 14th Street Bridge, and one of the survived, six people survived, or so they say, there's actually some dispute about this, one of the uh, survivors kept passing the rope and ended up going down. Um, and there's a reference to uh, that man in the poem. Loon's Water. Now my blue watercourse is back up filled with dead. I cannot spend my current in the salt mortal sea being damned with corpses. It's the river's commander speaking in Homer's The Iliad. Even though the view was lovely and the house a handsome blend of glass and stone, that precisely held the hard light of autumn mornings. My mother did not want to live by the river. As a schoolgirl, she had been haunted by Homer's moment of indecorum, a river littered with bodies crying out to Achilles. When my father built the house and cut down trees for a better view, she spoke of primal hostility and of retaliation by the river. Two years later, three Marines and their girlfriend shot the falls in a rubber raft. We ate dinner as the helicopter circled and swooped down, a ladder dangling from its belly. The winter my mother nearly left my father, a jet landed on the 14th Street Bridge, crushing a car and coming to rest in the river. We had been lost in the days of our lives, a beautiful woman plotting to kill her husband. Her ill-fated child had just found the gun when the tail appeared, slicing the water like the fin of a giant fish. All afternoon, we stared at the screen as if the jet would surface, as if our want alone could make it rise. A young man rescued a flight attendant floundering in the icy water. The next day, we heard the hero was a plumber. My mother spent hours staring at the water. She believed the river's dead were calling her, pilot, marines, two boys who drowned while fishing. On the wall above her bed, a photograph of a woman kissing a man with dark eyes and a crew cut. She looked then like Ida Lupino, all lace, thin, beautiful. And what do you think happened to her, she used to say. We're not meant for this business of rising and falling. 
Once my father canoed across the river. From the bank, my mother begged him not to. Cursing the house and his love of water, she talked of marrying the last giant to strike out in the 58 World Series. Instead, she married a lawyer from the Bronx and moved to Michigan and then to Virginia. Fifty yards from the falls, the current almost overwhelmed him. Pray for those foolish enough to be arrogant, she said. We're going down, the co-pilot said. I know, the pilot replied. I remember driving up river to watch them hoist the plane. Tail, midsection, mangled cockpit. I didn't tell her the bodies were blue and still strapped in their seats. Think of the five who rose or the sixth who passed them the rope. She was drunk on nostalgia and goodwill, having decided not to leave my father. That summer, for my father's 50th birthday, we went rafting on the Wolf River in Wisconsin. My mother brought along her pocketbook and jewelry. She had planned to resurrect her marriage, begin by walking on water, begin again by giving him what he wanted. Halfway down a chute, we spilled, and she had to pull me from the rapids. Again she cursed my father, her marriage, his love of water. Swallowing water, I saw her walking in a field of magnolias, so white they burned my eyes. At Lake Chigawa, we studied the common loon. We timed its plunge and stay underwater. Ninety seconds seemed like a summer. Two more, so hang on. Um, a short one. This next poem is entitled Fixity. Um, I guess it could be described as a love gone wrong poem. Um, there is a reference to uh, hitting a deer in this, in this poem. Somehow collides itself with uh, the collapse of a love affair. Fixity. Looking at stars in a speculated sky, I remember crocuses heavy with snow a young doe vaulting from darkness. And I remember the snow turning to sleet and nearly falling into the river as we trekked across the brink. She was a far moon falling into orbit, deflected from her straight-lined path by the force of attraction. I was a planet pulling her in. Or she was the doe that checked on the highway, panting in a hollow. By midnight we were colliding in bed. All week I have studied the fixity of stars, believing that love is the absence of equilibrium, two bodies hurling toward each other in darkness. Tonight, bullied by winter, spring has once again lost its footing, and I have confused love with desire. Finally, this, this last poem... It's entitled The Man Who Cared About His Teeth, um, slightly strange poem. Um, it's about a man I knew who was diagnosed as having stomach cancer, another uplifting subject here. Um, but it actually is uplifting. Um, he, he was a very wealthy man who, instead of traveling around the world or, or buying Mercedes Benzes, decided in his last nine months to have his teeth fixed. He had absolutely terrible teeth had them capped, the root canals done. Um, he had absolutely beautifully white teeth. 
um, at the end. While I was writing this poem, I was I was reading um, uh, Nikolai Gogol's Dead Souls and had some wonderful uh, nose imagery in it. And I, I, I imagine this man was a Gogol fan simply because I was. And I imagine this n man had a very, very large nose um, because of all of the nose imagery. The man who cared about his teeth. They say that a drowning man clutches at a straw and that he has not enough presence of mind at the time to grasp that. While a fly may ride the straw, his ten or twelve stone will not. But the idea does not occur to him at the time, and he goes on clutching at the straw. Nikolai Gogol, Dead Souls, Part 1. He waits in the waiting room, nose in a book, Dead Souls, Part 1. He reads Gogol in the office, Gogol in the barn, Gogol at the beach. He recalls the nose, a tale about a man who's lost his nose. Let us sniff around the, let us sniff around the similes, he says. A crab and a bat and a beautiful golden carriage. A fly in the soup, cancer in the gut. His teeth need fixing regardless. Neglected teeth will pine for a dentist. Opening his mouth, he relearns the dreadful lessons of loss and decay. A small garden of plaque. Two broken caps, gums as swollen as a sated leech. A white-robed woman cleans his smoke-stained teeth, gives him a sermon on fluoride and flossing and on the existence of hope somewhere. The needle penetrates the gum. He thinks of Gogol invading a snuff-box without the aid of fingers, Gogol caning the life out of sunning Swiss lizards. Gogol, is that your nose or are you eating a banana? He remembers the Russian proverb, the man with the longest nose sees further. Two. Not unlike a drowning man unexpectedly reappearing on the surface amid the joyful shouts of the crowd gathered on the bank of the river. But vainly do his brothers and sisters throw a rope into the water and wait for the drowning man's back and exhausted arms to appear again. Nikolai Gogol, Dead Souls, Part Two. At home, he lies in bed, long nose in a long book, Dead Souls, Part Two. The months pass, the leaves turn, his hair falls out. But how he learns to relish the habitual joy of brushing, the way the floss glides in and out between his teeth, the way it removes all that is unnecessary and harmful. How he talks of Gogol on a hunger strike, his frail body carried off to the baths, Gogol with half a dozen leeches dangling from his nose. Gogol moaning as the leeches fall into his mouth. How he takes satisfaction in his mouth's improvement, dealing out cash to have the root canals done, the fillings, the caps. He sits facing the water, white coats around him like snowflakes or angels, everything smelling of Gogol. Gogol unable to find a moral for a story, Gogol becoming a preacher in part two and losing his nose. Gogol in a last glimmer of light, burning half of dead souls. So you're off playing hearts with the man next door. Suits yourself, he cries to a nurse. My nose, mind my nose. Yet even deluged with delirium, he looks at himself in the mirror, not noticing the weight loss, the fact that his hair has fallen out, his scars like petunias. He notices only his teeth, his beautiful white teeth. Thank you very much.
Thank you all, and we hope you'll join us for some wine and seltzer in the front, okay?